you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This weekend I received an email from some of our friends that live in China, and they talked about how in China today, millions of people, perhaps billions, are celebrating something called Tomb Sweeping Day. It's a day when they will go and visit the graves of their ancestors, repairing tombstones, planting flowers, cleaning out weeds, all as a sign of respect for those that have gone on before them, a sign of honor to their family and friends that have died. This morning, at the same time, billions of Christians are celebrating what is in many ways just the opposite of that. We are celebrating our Savior who died, but who also rose again. We are not showing respect for the dead, but giving worship to Jesus who is alive. You see, for Christianity, the resurrection of Christ, belief in the resurrection of Christ, is not an option. You cannot have someone who says, well, I am a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. The Bible will not allow that to be the case. You will, in fact, not be truly a Christian unless you hold to the resurrection of Christ. Paul summarizes the essence of Christianity and its message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you, by which, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. So this is a message that they received, they believed, and they were saved. I deliver it to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So anyone today or back then or any time in the future, anyone who wants to be saved, that is, they want to have a relationship with the living God. They want to know Him and be known by Him and experience everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. They must believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for them. But even as I say that, some find that hard to believe. They don't have any problem believing there was a historical Jesus. They don't have any problem believing that Jesus died. But they find it a hard pill to swallow to say that Jesus came back to life. After all, they might say the people back then were gullible. Uh, they were primitive. Uh, but we're not like that. We're sophisticated. We're modern. We, we have science today. We know dead people don't come back to life. Yes, you can have someone that's quote-unquote clinically dead. Their heart has stopped beating. Uh, brain activity has begun to slow. There's no breaths, but, but we can resuscitate them. We, we, can, we can start the machinery back up and have them back, but that's not coming back from the dead. Jesus was, was dead, buried, embalmed, and yet he came back to life even better than he was before. And so we think that somehow they might have been hoodwinked into believing that, but we never will. We are those that presume that what is newer is truer and what is recent is decent. But if we really believe that, we're actually chronological snobs. Because if we would take any time to study at all, if we would take time to read the New Testament, what we would see is that though the ancient peoples didn't know how to make penicillin, they were not stupid. And what Luke even shows us in his gospel and throughout the New Testament as well is that the resurrection has never been easy to believe. No one just said, oh, Jesus came back from the dead. Sure, it happens all the time. That was never the case. 
the Jews and the Greeks, everyone that encountered the gospel stopped right there. Wait a minute. Are you saying a man came back to life from the dead? Is that what you're asking me to believe? Some mocked it. Some struggled with it. But this is what Christians believed and preached and still do today, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is alive today. And as Luke is writing his gospel, he knows that it's not easy to believe. He knows that it's going to be a stumbling block. But he is writing to give assurance to a man named Theophilus that yes, the resurrection did indeed happen. And and leading up to this point in this gospel, Luke has been focused on the life and ministry, the, the teachings of Jesus Christ. So he's given this narrative, not only the announcement of his supernatural birth, but how the people interacted with that, whether or not they believed that or, or rejected that. Now he's shown us Jesus be born and enter into his ministry. And so for the first 20 chapters of Luke's gospel, we saw sermons and miracles, explanations of fulfilled prophecies. And he moved pretty quickly through Jesus' life. He covered about 33 years and 20 chapters. But then all of a sudden he stops and he puts the brakes on. And he spends four long chapters on just seven days in Jesus' life. Why? Because that week that we call today Holy Week is, was about everything that Jesus came to do. Everything that he said, everything that he preached, every person that he healed was all about what would take place during that week. It was paving the way for his death, which he said was coming. Jesus predicted his own death. He went to his own death. He said it's going to take place in Jerusalem, and he turned his face like flint. That means he determined to go to Jerusalem and experience a violent death, but also a death that was necessary. Because on the cross, Jesus hung between a holy God and sinful people. He was our substitute, absorbing God's just and righteous wrath for our sins. And what Luke wants us to see is that apart from faith in that sacrifice, there is no salvation. There is no way to God. There is not another path of the mountain. This is it. And the way that we can know that that is truly it, that God is happy with that sacrifice, that he is pleased to make us right with him, to forgive us through his son Jesus, is because he didn't leave Jesus in the grave. He brought him back to life on the third day. But Jesus' disciples somehow missed all this. Jesus had told them what was coming, but they still didn't expect it. And so what Luke wants us to see is not only the kind of king that Jesus would be, not not one that would triumph in power and battle, but one who came in humility and sacrifice, but that even today we can have confidence in our belief in the historicity of the resurrection and we can see its saving effect for us today. So we enter into this passage now, not on Friday when Jesus has offered up his life, not on Saturday as the disciples have scattered, the women wept, and the whole world seemed to stand still, but early on Sunday morning. Jesus' lifeless body had been taken down from the cross, it had been set in a tomb, it had been covered with spices, and it was left there to decay like dead bodies do. But now on the third day, Luke shows us the fullness of Christ's power and the glory of his resurrection. We're going to be looking at chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Let's begin reading on the very last verse of chapter 23. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 
they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. May God bless the reading of his word. In his letter to the First Corinthians, Paul says that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then all of this is a waste of our time. It's meaningless. It, it, it's a complete waste. There is no Christianity without a risen Christ. But if he is raised from the dead then it changes everything. It changes everything from the course of human history to how we live our lives today. And so as we think about the importance of the resurrection, through these verses, we first want to see the resurrection's authenticity. The resurrection's authenticity. From day one of our study through this book, and for those of you that are joining us new, we've been working our way uh, section by section, chapter by chapter to, through Luke's gospel until we've arrived here today. From day one, we've said the way that Luke is writing is not basing this material on made-up ideas, on fairy tales. He is an historic investigator. Luke has traveled with the apostles. He's went back to where Jesus has lived and he's talked to people. He likely talked with Jesus' own mother, Mary, and many of the people who had interactions with Jesus. And we see, woven into the story that he is writing, certain historical details that only those that were there would know. It it has the marks of those giving an eyewitness account. And so the overall effect is one of a, well, a well-researched document presenting to us Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And that air of authenticity, of historic reliability, doesn't just stop every time we hit a miracle. He, he went through the same rigorous process before of interviewing people. Tell me what it was like before this happened. Tell me what it was like while it was happening. Tell me what happened after it happened. And so we see here an authentic recounting that bears the marks of historical fact about the resurrection, largely for two main reasons. First, because of its unexpected response. Because of the unexpected response that we find in these verses. In verse 1, Luke begins by telling us that the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, once again, we remember what's happened before this. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea had gone quite boldly to Pilate and said, I would like the body of Jesus that I can give it a proper burial. And we said uh, last week that that was, that was unheard of. No one wanted to be associated with crucified criminals. Furthermore, in the Roman law, you were not given the right to a proper burial if you had been crucified. Joseph had been a disciple of Jesus hiding in the shadows for, for fear of what might happen to him. And now at Jesus' death, he boldly steps out and wants to make his identity with Christ clear 
to all those around. And so he gets Jesus' body, he takes it to his own tomb, a brand new tomb, and he quickly covers it with spices and ointments. This is the way they embalmed bodies back then. They did not uh, drill holes in it like we do today and drain out the fluids and pump us full of preservatives so we look great at our funeral. They didn't do that. Uh, when, when you died, you started to decay and smell. So they would dump all kinds of perfumes and spices and ointments so that way uh, you, you were pretty decent until they got you uh, put into the ground. That was Friday afternoon. Friday evening, the Sabbath was beginning. It was quickly approaching. They needed to hurry up and finish the work so that they could obey the commandment of God and be at home with family to cease from their work. And the they here, they went to the tomb. This was the women who saw what Joseph did. They saw his boldness. They saw his faith in Jesus, his love for him, even in death, and said, let, let, let's go and see where he's buried. And, and they saw the great care with which Joseph had the body laid in. They saw the spices and ointments that were put on. And they saw the massive stone rolled into the front of the entrance so no one would bother the body. And they said, well, we appreciate what Joseph did, but, you know, we're women. We know perfumes, we know spices, and Jesus deserves better than that. And so they're preparing in their minds to come, just as they do here the first day of the week, and put even more on, to lavish even more, as it were, appreciation and love and adoration on the dead body of Jesus. But they get there and something unexpected happens. They find the stone rolled away. Now what's interesting in the other Gospels, on the way there, they're asking themselves, how are we going to move the stone? Now they know, which Luke is not concerned to tell us about here, it's not important for what he wants to convey, that the Jewish authorities have set a guard there. There are soldiers there. And they would have seen this after the stone was rolled away. And perhaps they thought, well, we'll get the soldiers to roll the stone away. Perhaps we'll plead with them and say, look, we traveled this far, we have these spices, but they don't really know what's going to happen. They get there, stone's gone. Tomb is wide open. Now remember, these women have already been sucker punched just a few days ago. That though Jesus said it was going to happen, it did not compute with them. And it was an emotionally scarring thing to see their friend, their, their, their brother, their son, their loved one, the one they thought was going to be the savior of the world, strung up like a criminal on a cross. It just completely blindsided them. And now, now they come to this tomb. And once again, they've come with heavy hearts and some tears, and they've been waylaid. This new tomb with its large stone, is now empty. They rush to the tomb, they go in, and they find not the body of the Lord Jesus. He's gone. Body's not there. Now, I want you to imagine, some people go either on holidays or on uh, their birthdays or whatever it is, they will go and they will, uh, much like they're doing in, in China today, uh, you will go and repair and, and keep up the grave sites of loved ones. You will wipe the, the autumn leaves off the tombstone. Perhaps you'll put new flowers in. If they're a veteran, you'll hang a flag there. Imagine going to the graveyard one day. And as you begin to walk up, you see something is not right. And as you get closer, you realize that the hole has been redug, that the casket is gone and your loved one is nowhere to be found. Imagine how that would make you feel. Who would do this? What, what, what's going on? Imagine all the more so now. The wound is still fresh. And here they show up. Who would have done this to Jesus? Why would someone steal the body? But while they were perplexed about this, Luke tells us, behold, 
two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, based on the rest of the Bible, we know these two men were angelic beings. And like everywhere else in the Bible, when people encounter angels, verse 5, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Notice what the angel says. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, and on, be crucified on the third day rise? So here is the unexpected response. Not that the tomb was empty or that the angels were there, but that these women were here at all. Do, do you understand? The angel is rebuking them. It's a gentle rebuke, but he is rebuking them nonetheless. For what? For their unbelief. He says, why are you here? What did you expect to find? You were disciples of Jesus. You knew what he taught. Don't you remember? He said this was going to happen. That he would be delivered up in the hands of sinful men. He would be crucified. He would be buried. And on the third day, he would rise. Why are you here looking for a body with perfumes and spices? It's because they didn't believe. Because they had not heard Jesus' words and actually believed he would come back to life. We, we, we can look at many places where Jesus predicted this, but chapter 9 of verse Luke was one of the most, uh, one of the earliest ones. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the angels are saying that these women had heard those words and believed they wouldn't have come with heavy hearts and burial spices. They would have come expectantly, hoping for his words to be true. They would have come expecting Jesus to be alive, not to be dead and buried in a tomb. Now, lest we come down too hard on these women, think about the disciples as well. Uh, the, the, these women are reminded of Jesus' words. They go and tell the apostles what happened and what happens. Verse 11, Luke says, These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So here are Jesus' apostles, people who spent more time with him than anyone else. They'd heard all these teachings, and yet when the women say, he's not there, the body's raised, we saw angels. They said, this is exactly what he said. They're like, come on. Look, he's dead, he's gone. You're in hysteria. Just, just get out of here. We don't, we don't believe it. But one, Peter, rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw linen clothes by themselves, and he went marveling at what happened. We might think, well, Peter believed. Well, maybe not. We do a search for that word marveling throughout the Bible. And, and you know what we find? It is more likely that it is unbelieving astonishment than it is any kind of sign of belief. It's a confusion of, I, can't, I don't understand what's happening. So here we see the unexpected response to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus said it was going to happen multiple times. He preached that it was going to happen. He predicted it was going to happen. And when it happened, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Secondly, we also see unlikely witnesses. Unlikely, unlikely witnesses. Now, this may not seem like a big deal today because of the society in which we live, but one of the big changes that Christianity brought to the world from the other religions was an increased valuing of women. In Jesus' time, women were not seen as equals. In Jewish culture, and this is especially significant for us, women were not even permitted to act as a witness in a court of law. So two guys are out in the field, starts an argument. One guy takes a sword and just runs him through. Murder. But if the only person to see it was a woman, the guy would get off. 
Because her testimony was not considered credible and authoritative in a Jewish court. Now don't miss the irony of this. Who are the first witnesses? Who were the first people to bear testimony to the fact that Jesus was alive? It was these Jewish women. He says they were the first ones there. They're the ones that went and told the apostles. And not just women in general. Luke names names. He says it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were there early on Sunday morning. Now, why is that important? Because Luke is telling you, I talked to them. And if you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. You can hunt these ladies down and you can ask them what they saw and what they experienced. And Paul says something similar again in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the risen Christ and he says, Jesus, after his death, when he came back to life, he appeared on one occasion to more than 500 people at the same time, most of whom are still alive, if you want to go check it out and talk to them about it. Now think about these things. Put these things together in your mind from the perspective of authenticity. Is this an historical event? Every Easter, people like to write articles and they do specials on 2020 and they publish books and blah, blah, blah. And here's what they say. Jesus didn't come back from the dead. Jesus didn't claim to be God. Jesus has no, didn't, didn't want anything about what Christianity is today. The later disciples made all those things up. Really? All right, so let's put that to the test. If you were going to make up a story about Jesus one in which he was exalted as God and everybody should worship him and trust him to be the Messiah. Would you write a scenario like this? Is this the kind of story that you would leave? Wouldn't you write something a little more impressive? I don't recommend, just to be clear, I don't recommend anything that's shown on HBO. Okay, let's just be real clear about that. But they just had a documentary about L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology called Going Clear. And I didn't see the show, but I have the book. And I'll tell you one of the things that the Scientologist did that L. Ron Hubbard himself did to make himself look more impressive, more authoritative, more likely to gain money and followers was to create all kinds of crazy stories about what he did. In World War II, he says, oh, he's this big war hero, sinking enemy battleships and everything else. You go back and you can look at army records and find, you know what he attacked as a subcommander? A log floating in the water. That's what he did. So he creates all these impressive stories when we go back, and guess what? It doesn't stand up to be true. Now, here's the thing. If you were going to create an impressive story about Jesus, is this how you would do it? If you want to convince someone that Jesus should be believed in, would you start it off by showing his closest friends and followers being perplexed and frightened and not believing and marveling at the fact that he came back to life just like he said he would? Would you say that women were the first people to see the empty tomb? That they were the first eyewitnesses? And would you give names? If you're making all this up, would you write down people's names so they could go and check their sources? I don't think so. You would have Jesus coming out of the grave and thousands of people immediately falling on their faces, believing, rejoicing. You would have those men. You would have kings and princes there as the first eyewitnesses. If you were making this up, this would read much differently than what it reads right here because what we see here is not impressive at all. From a human perspective, it is not impressive at all. And yet that's exactly what, Jesus, what Luke writes down for us. Why? Because that's what happened. Because this is the true historical account. This is the authentic record of events. And so he puts it all down, warts and all, even the unimpressive things. 
Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is an authenticity that is undeniable to the resurrection. And because we see the resurrection's authenticity, now we can embrace and rest in the resurrection's assurance. The resurrection's assurance. What assurance does the resurrection provide? At least two things. First of all, that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is alive. The angel asked the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Jesus is alive. Now understand what that means. You have some that will say, let's just be clear. First of all, you have some that will say, well, Jesus rose spiritually. His spirit came to life, but, but not his body. His body stayed in the ground. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what we're talking about here. First of all, uh, why is there a need for an empty tomb and no body then? What happened to that body? Did it vaporize? You know, I mean, what, 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 why would we emphasize empty tomb, no body, if we're saying it was just a spiritual resurrection? But also, when we go to John's gospel, we see a man named Thomas able to grab hold of Jesus, to put his fingers in the holes that once had Roman nails driven through the hands and feet, a spear chucked in Jesus' side to prove, yes, I am the same guy that was up on that cross three days ago. It's me, Thomas. It is your friend Jesus now, as he says, my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' resurrection was no ethereal spirit or spooky ghost. This is the reality. Jesus is alive. And what that means is Jesus is now in a class all by himself. There is no one else like him. There have been other great people throughout history. Some have been entertainers and artists. Some have been philosophers and politicians. Some have even been religious leaders. But all of them, all of them, though have followers and friends and critics even today, they're all dead. But Jesus is alive. It doesn't matter how much good or evil they did in this world, how much they contributed to society, how deep of a mark they left, they're all dead. But Jesus is alive. They might have recorded songs and films, left behind books and thoughtful ideas, but they're all dead and Jesus is alive. So if you are here and Christ is your king, if you have trusted in him, if you have displayed that to the church and the world through something like baptism, and you trust that he is your savior, then the God you worship isn't a fading memory. He isn't a long past presence. We don't gather today in memorial of a great but gone man. We gather together to give worship and praise and call out to prayer and hear the word of a risen savior, a living God, Jesus Christ. Our Savior doesn't give us ideas. He gives us himself. And so this is the assurance that we have. Because he is alive, our worship is not in vain. When we pray, it is not to ourselves, but to a God who listens with Jesus sitting by his side to intercede for us. When we are tempted, we remember that, yes, he was tempted like us, yet without sin. And so even now, he can sympathize with us. He can encourage us and give us grace to persevere. Jesus is alive, but Jesus also has authority. Jesus also has authority. Notice what Luke says in verse 3. For the first time in this gospel, Luke identifies Christ as the Lord Jesus. That is a title of authority. Jesus hasn't even shown up in the account yet. You think about this. Resurrection appearance, and we still haven't seen Jesus himself yet. We just have all of the evidence that he's alive. But already, Luke is writing in such a way that the world is different. Everything has changed. Jesus is alive, and now he has authority over all things. Unless we doubt that, Jesus himself said, 
to all of his gathered disciples that now the Father has given him, the Son, all authority in heaven and on earth. So what's going on in your life today? Are you struggling with money and worry or illness or busyness or family or whatever it is? Guess what? Jesus has authority over all those things. Are you busy filling out your brackets and watching sports? Guess what? Jesus has authority over those things. Do you worry about where you're going to spend eternity? Jesus has authority over those things. Now, some hear that word authority and they get uncomfortable. Like Mark Twain, who once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand which bother me, but the things I do understand which bother me. You understand what authority means and you want to pull away. You don't want an authority over your life. But authority can be a good thing as well. Think about what Jesus' authority means. Earlier, the angels told the women, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and on the third day must rise again. That word affects all the verbs in the rest of the sentence. He must be delivered, he must be crucified, and he must rise again. What does that mean? It means Jesus has authority to save. It means Jesus has authority to save because it was through his death that he achieved atonement for sinners. And now his resurrection validates that atoning death. This was not a whimsical accident. This was not playing, playing CDE or any other letter. This is what God intended. This is what he said must happen in order for sinful people to come to know me and to be forgiven. The angel said, remember what Jesus said. And he points the women back to the words of Jesus as a sign of his authority. He spoke and it came true. And so even today, when Jesus speaks through his words, we must listen, we must learn, we must obey. But remember what else the angel, or rather what Jesus said. Jesus not only predicted his resurrection, but when one of his friends Lazarus died, he confronted his sister by telling her this, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he has authority over death. He has authority over death. The reality of his resurrection is now our hope for our own resurrection. When we find in him forgiveness from our sins and spiritual life, we have Assurance of our own resurrection one day, of our own coming out of the tomb with renewed life. So this is what, this is what the authority of Jesus looks like. He not only has authority to save, he has authority through his word, he has authority over death. He has all the authority that we need in our life. The authority we need to be made right with God and to be found as forgiven sinners. Many states in our nation have statues to great men that represent what their state is all about. And the state of Indiana is one such state. A man in one of their statues was born in the 1800s and he was a successful lawyer and a great leader in military matters. He was also a politician serving as the governor of the territory of New Mexico. And when that man was through with that assignment, he represented the United States as an ambassador to the nation of Turkey. All the while, this great man, though, was influenced by another man, an ardent atheist, who looked at this great 
representative of the state of Indiana and said, look at all of your mental powers, look at all of your abilities of investigation, your lawyer-like mind discerning evidence and fact, why don't you help me put an end to the myth of Christianity? Why don't you help me eradicate it from the face of the earth? So this man from Indiana respected it and even admired that atheist. And so he said, yes, I'll help. And so he began to study Christianity. And as this man began to study Christianity, it came down to him one central issue, namely the resurrection of Christ. If you could disprove that, Christianity would crumble. It would, it would go away like an old piece of paper blown by the wind. So this great and learned man, soldier, politician, lawyer, he began to put all of his mind and skills to this task, an intense study of the resurrection of Christ, seeking to, to destroy it. But all that study had an unintended consequence. This man began to realize that the more he studied, the more evidence he saw that the resurrection was not a myth. It was not made up or faked. It was real. It was an historic event. He became convinced that Jesus really did die and rise from the grave and he himself did not seek any longer to destroy Christianity but to embrace it. He became a believer in Christ. You might know this man. His name was Lou Wallace. And he took all of his research and used it to write a best-selling book called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, which went on to become a play and a movie and so many other things. What I'm telling you is that Wallace rightly discerned the importance of the resurrection. And in the end, we must discern its importance too. For the resurrection gives us assurance that Christianity is indeed true. That Jesus is alive and he is a worthy object of our faith. When we put our faith in him for salvation, it is not in vain. Moreover, the resurrection sets a new direction for our life. If Jesus is alive, if he is king, if he is the all-authoritative Lord, then everything about us is affected by him. If he has authority over all things, it also means he has authority over us. And therefore, all that we do, all that we think, all that we strive for in this life should be guided by that great thought of Christ's authority of his glory in our lives. This morning we have hope because Jesus is alive. Father, we are thankful for that reality and we pray, Lord, that you will drive it into our minds and our hearts so that we will have hope in this life, hope of salvation, hope of forgiveness, hope of being made right with you and of eternal life with you through your Son. Lord, we ask all these things in his name. Amen.